Since recording this episode, the weeks have been informed that the District Court decision awarding substantial damages in circumstances of a breach of disclosure by police, which is referred to during the episode, is being appealed by the State of New South Wales, including in relation to liability, and a stay of the judgment has been granted. This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. This week, The Wigs return to the topic of the prosecution's duty of disclosure in criminal matters. Felicity recently presented at a criminal lawyers conference on the topic and took the opportunity to survey the hundreds of attendees on their experience of disclosure in criminal matters. The results were disturbing and are further evidence of the systemic problem in the state of New South Wales when it comes to the state complying with its legal obligations of disclosure, being the basic obligation of the police and prosecution to disclose all evidence that might possibly assist the accused in conducting their defence. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns, and I'm joined by Felicity Graham. So good to be with you. So Jim. good to be with you. And you other boys. Yeah, Manuel Kukasharian, there's Hello. one. Hello. Hello. How Hello. are you? I'm well. Thank you for making it on the, all the way in today. Oh, so hard. I know. I appreciate your time in the studio. It's hard to get us all together. Mr. Stephen Lawrence, MLC. It's good to see you all this week. Yep, good. It's been a long week. Uh. And we're back together. Uh, we have some uh, serious legal ease to get into and Felicity Graham is going to take charge of it take carriage mm-hmm. the floor is yours thank you so I recently presented at a legal conference the topic was what is attempted here would cause the criminal justice system to break mm-hmm. which is something a magistrate said in refusing my client relief on the issue of prosecution non-disclosure mm. magistrate Clisdale Magistrate Clisdell. The decision by Magistrate Clisdell was set aside in the case of Bradley and Senior Constable Chilby, 2020 decision, the New South Wales Supreme Court, and 105. Did it, did it break the criminal? It broke. Okay. It's very sad. Well, what Magistrate Clisdell thought would cause the criminal justice system to break, the Supreme Court thought was an absolutely basic minimum requirement of fairness. <laughs> and I mean, both of those things might, might be true. <laughs> yes. Yes, except I don't think that Justice... Who was it? Justice... Adamson. Yeah, I don't think Justice Adamson tends to, tends to do things to break the criminal justice system very often. No, but whether or not, whether or not disclosure is actually occurring is, it all, is a big question, right? Mm. So the Whigs have talked about this topic quite a lot before. Mm. We talked about the case of Bradley and Senior Constable Chilbury in Season 2, Episode 4. I knew it was early. Yeah. We talked about Lawyer X and the police disclosure issues in Season 2, Episode 9. Ah. And we talked about policing the prosecutors, prosecutorial ethics for criminal lawyers in Season 4, Episode 1, which was is that, a live show. That's the one where I, oh, no, okay, where I dropped the Demi Moore joke. No, that was earlier. That was a disclosure movie. Anyway. Not sure. I digress. <laughs> That's so, right. I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was a personal high point for me in the beginning of the week's day. It's not the one with the pottery, is it? It's a different one. To no, that. That's Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Felicity. Can you take us back Please. to something serious? Good. I will. <laughs> so I presented at a conference um, criminal lawyers, predominantly solicitors working as um, criminal defence lawyers, Um, About 300 people uh, and there were a few 
a um, handful of prosecutors and barristers in the audience, but it was mainly solicitors. And I did a bit of a different thing for this presentation. So I did a live survey of the audience as my presentation and woven into it were, was a discussion of the different legal principles and some cases. But um, the survey was on this issue of prosecution disclosure in the local court and about 275 people participated in the survey throughout the session and there were a bunch of different questions, over 100 people to about 230 people answered any given question. I should say in terms of survey methodology, there's some bias built into the survey because people self-selected in terms of whether they chose to answer a question or not. Um, and it was all anonymous, so I don't know who answered the questions, but they were all at this criminal law conference. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of interesting results I suppose one of the starting points might be this, which was probably the most um, stark result. 98% of people who voted on this question said that the police in New South Wales do not have a good understanding of the nature and importance of the prosecutorial disclosure obligations. The police don't. That the police in New South Wales don't. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and I asked a number. Is that talking of, about investigating police or prosecuting police or both? Just police in New Generally, South Wales. Yeah. yeah. And then I asked um, some questions, which noting that the audience um, was mainly criminal defence solicitors, asking about familiarity with the obligations of um, police and prosecutors in relation to the disclosure of material um, and asked the audience how familiar they considered themselves to be. So 60% of the audience said that they were somewhat familiar with the obligations of police and prosecutors regarding disclosure of material to the accused. 35% said very familiar and 5% said not familiar at all. And this is... This was somewhat troubling to me, particularly in circumstances where the room was filled with a lot of experience. Mm. So 43% of people had more than 10 years Mm. experience. Mm. 9% had 8 to 10 years. 24% had 4 to 7 years. That's, that's, you know, substantial experience as um, a criminal law practitioner. Um, And it's troubling to me and I would think others that, most people are saying they're only somewhat familiar with these obligations and how they work. Well, if they were working well, that wouldn't be a problem. Sure. Right. Mm. But I think you should still have a very solid understanding of these foundational principles. I think people would understand that there's a duty of disclosure, but and, and the response would be, well, I know there's a duty of disclosure. And if you assume that that was being complied with completely, I don't need to know the specifics beyond that, mm. I think. But mm. the, I think the problem is that the other results show that that's problematic, right? Mm. So I asked one question 
twice. I asked it at the very beginning of my presentation and at the end. And the question was this, in your experience in criminal proceedings in New South Wales, how frequently does the prosecution fail to comply with its duty of disclosure by non-disclosure or late disclosure to the accused? And the options were routinely, frequently, occasionally, rarely, never, I'm not sure. 36% of people who answered that question said routinely and 42% said frequently. So um, that's 78% are either routinely or frequently. Yeah. Routinely and frequently. There's a breach. The same, isn't it? Routinely means almost every time, as a matter of course, as opposed to often. Yeah, like it would be more systemic. The system is to not do it. But in practice, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, I get it. Sorry, yeah. yeah. 14% said occasionally, 3% said rarely, no one said never, and 6% said I'm not sure. When I asked the question again at the end of the um, presentation... Having explained to them what... The requirements were, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Having gone through Reardon and what are all the different types of tests that apply in the solicitors and barristers rules, in mm. um, various different types of categories of documents that you'd expect to be disclosed and um, how the law operates in this area. So I asked this question at the end, given what you know now in criminal proceedings in New South Wales, how frequently does the prosecution fail to comply with its duty of disclosure? Now, not everyone answered that question um, from the original cohort, I should say that, but um, 59% said routinely, 34% said frequently. So 93% of respondents to that question at the end of the presentation said um that it was either routine or frequent breach by um, the prosecution of its duty in New South Wales. I wonder what numbers you'd get if it was a conference full of police officers and prosecutors. Mm. (laughs) You'd probably get the reverse number. Yeah, Yeah. look, it's really interesting because in Bradley, the the police position was that they had complied with their duty Mm. of disclosure that the hearing could run with the limited credibility material that we had, which was that the complainant had a record for dishonesty matters and violence Mm. and drug-related matters and so on, but they weren't going to hand over the fact sheet to give any meaningful content to that Mm. criminal record. They weren't going to hand over any of the material relating to current proceedings Mm. against her, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been in heaps of matters where prosecutors have stood up and said in relation to either criminal records generally or offence-specific dishonest or violent offences on records, we do not have a duty to give you the fact sheets. We do not have a duty to disclose. And they seem to believe it. It seems to be a submission made sort of in good faith. Why aren't they interested in actually trying to figure out these things? That's what I don't understand. Right? Yeah. Particular, I mean, I understand police are making the case, but... Because it's self-serving. Yeah, but Self-serving arguments are always more attractive and persuasive, right? So you're running a case as a prosecutor. You want to get a conviction because, let's face it, these are human beings, not objective ministers of justice. That's a legal construct. You know that by having to comply with these obligations, you'll, it'll take time, it'll take work, it might delay the matter... It will diminish your chance of winning the case. So that's why I think it's a self-serving thing. Do and they those try and hide behind a, we, don't, we have a, also have a duty to Section 56 Civil Procedure Act not unduly burden and delay the court? 
and we're trying to hide behind a Well, those things are important principles in criminal litigation, irrespective of any particular statute, right? And is this the veil that they're trying to hide behind? No. No, no, not, not expressly, though that... That's sort of what Clisdell, Magistrate Clisdell, was talking about in your case, I think. Yeah, so... This will cause delay because everyone will be demanding disclosure of everything. And Magistrate Clisdell said that, you know, our application was improper, attempting to frustrate the prosecution. And the Supreme Court said, look, well, there was no evidence of oppression or um, inability to... um, kind of expend resources to comply with these mm. um, disclosure obligations. But if that were to be relevant, there would need to be evidence. And let's just deal with the reality, which is, yes, requests for disclosure can slow down proceedings, and it sometimes does, but that's a direct consequence of a failure on a systemic level of routine compliance. Correct. Because let's say, for example, you've got some matter where you've got a human complainant making an allegation. Police may well know or suspect or should inquire into whether this person's a frequent player in the criminal justice system, whether they've been an accused themselves, whether they've got adverse credibility information about them. That's pretty simple to do. You type their name into a thing called COPS and all the information about them held by the police agency will come up. When they prepare briefs, I would suggest, when they're relying upon a human complainant or any other material witness where credibility is going to be an issue or might be an issue, you, you search their name in the database. If people did these things, you wouldn't have this problem of these arguments about the system coming to a crushing halt because it would just be done just like you print off their statement. This is what I mean. I, I don't understand why they don't do it. It's it's that simple. I it's, think it's you know, an entrenched culture of yeah. non-disclosure. And I think that's borne out as well in the reasons. You know, there's lots of different reasons that are given by police and prosecutors when they rebuff requests for disclosure. There's a recent false imprisonment and misfeasance in public office civil case from the New South Wales District Court, which dealt with this issue. And I'll just read from some of the transcript, which I think captures um, a lot of what um, practitioners are dealing with on a daily basis. This was a case... um, I'm just not sure that I can name the case because I think there might be um, some naming issues, but it was a decision of... um, Judge Curtis on the 21st of June 2023 in the District Court and the um, case involved at least in one respect a plaintiff who was as a young person charged with um, sexual assault offences in the course of the preparation of the brief for the DPP the um, officer in charge intentionally excluded um, COPS reports that included a version from the complainant that the sexual intercourse had been consensual. The um, material was uncovered late and I think by virtue of a subpoena issued to the Commissioner of Police and then ultimately the accused was acquitted. Then he brought proceedings against the State of New South Wales on the basis of the improper conduct of the officer in charge. And the um, officer was cross-examined in those proceedings and he was asked about why he didn't disclose the cops' entries. 
And he said, well, according to her, that is the complainant, she woke up with the accused sexually assaulting her. That's, that, that isn't consent. Question, no, but she said in the statement of 8th of February that she did consent. She told someone that. Answer, yes. Question, you didn't think that was important? Answer, once I took her statement and I was satisfied that the issue had been resolved. Question, so because you chose not to believe a version, you chose to conceal it? Answer, absolutely not. Question, well, why didn't you reveal it? Answer, we don't produce police reports in briefs of evidence. Question, but you were asking the DPP to launch a prosecution without knowing about this information. Answer, I I had placed all relevant information I felt were forwarded to the DPP. And it goes on and on and on. Um, question, what you're telling the court is that you made a conscious decision to withhold that evidence in the cop's narrative. Answer, I simply did not see the relevance of. And then the judge jumps in and interrupts and says, question, I find that answer strange. You say that you didn't think it necessary to comply with your duty to provide all possible evidence. Answer, yes, it's my duty to supply all available evidence. Question, you agree that you're in breach of your duty in not giving this evidence to the plaintiff. Answer, no, because it's my understanding that if they wanted that evidence, then you subpoena it. Question, mm. hang on, don't you understand your duty independently is to provide all exculpatory evidence? Answer, I don't recall at what stage the DPP were aware. Question, you're not answering the question. Did you not understand that it was your duty to disclose exculpatory evidence? Answer, yes. Question, it was? Answer, it is my duty, yes. I think we need a criminal offence mm. that is tailored to capture that sort of conduct. Like it's borderline attempt to pervert the course of justice, I would have thought, but there might be some mental element, mens rea problem with that. Mm. But I just think we're at a, when you know, when a police officer in a presumably highly prepared civil trial is giving that evidence, mm. like there would have been pleadings, mm. issue would have been joined on these things, mm. and that evidence is being seriously given. Mm. I mean, I just... Yeah. I've crossed the police officer to similar effect yeah. in another matter. Like, yeah. it's not... I don't think this is... I mean, it's not that common to have the transcript available in, in a decision, but I think that type of approach is common sense, yeah. and that was revealed in the, the survey yeah. results in terms of what people were saying with the responses they were receiving. So what are some of the other sort of rationales you get? I get things... Or I've in the past gotten things like, well, that's not our case. Our case is this, therefore that's not relevant to our case. Then you get, it's confidential. It's privacy. Not private. Privacy of the witness. It would have to be, yeah, privacy is a big one that we just can't give you fact sheets of people. That's private. It's not my job to help defendants. Yeah. What do you mean by it's private? Isn't it a public document? No. So, for example, fact sheets, cops' events... Stuff I mean, like they may that. be public then, documents, actually. But they're not until they're stuff? made public generally in a criminal proceeding. Which they may well Which have they often, yeah. I mean, they don't sort of, sort of tend to delve into it to that level, do they? But, a st- you know, a lot of these documents are not public documents. They're sitting in a police system. I wonder if the police would face misconduct allegations. If, if they provided these things. Well, this, if, you're on this, if you're in a civil proceeding after the fact and you've withheld evidence and there's a, ca- a civil proceeding being brought against you, you're probably going to face misconduct for that. Yeah. Maybe. Are you? I don't yeah. Know. I mean, I doubt I would be interested to know whether to comply as well? that police officer who Felicity just quoted from has had action taken against them because... Well, you're bringing significant cost to your department. There's still sort of... Firstly, the DPP can take some actions, but also they can be reporting to the relevant bodies. Mm. Oh, yeah. And you'd think if the DPP gets wind of a cost order being made for non-disclosure, mm. the DPP 
which is not a defendant's job to do this, mm. would then send those people to either the, the either police complaint or a lawyer complaint to the relevant conduct bodies. Mm. Yeah. When does that happen? Yeah, so other reasons given when police and prosecutors rebuff requests for disclosure, um, they claim legal privilege when no privilege exists. That's quite topical at the moment. Um, it's not Strange relevant. Wrong, they ignore, um, or as one lawyer put it, leave me on scene. Um there, there's nothing to disclose. Um, most of the time it goes unanswered was one response. Mm, that's interesting. Um, Do you just put a request in? They just ignore you? Yeah. Yeah, ignore the request. And then you have Say to Say the material is for internal use only. Yeah. I mean, I, I, think, I think the idea of a criminal offence is a good one. I also Do you think it would cause there to be sort of more insidious underground non-disclosure? Like sort of it'd be harder to prove a breach? No, because I think in prac- I think that might happen in the extraordinary case, but in the ordinary case, you would get much more disclosure. Like we don't get cops entries. We don't get the entries from the police officers. Just, mm. it's, it's, a, it's insane mm. that we don't just get those as a matter of course. And it's not seen as wrong conduct. I think that's a problem. There's not a there's a legal norm which is very complicated. It is in some statutory provisions, but it's complicated in terms of what it means in any given case. But there's just not a well understood rule that's in the front of their minds, which yeah. is you must disclose exculpatory material. So if there was a criminal offence, they would train them. Or potentially exculpatory material. You know, the, the disclosure obligation is very broad, might be relevant, might assist the defence. And information. Might lead to, right. yeah. It's not just documents, it's information. Sure. So, right. You've so had a you, telephone conversation that you haven't recorded. Yeah. Right. Mm. You have to disclose it. Yeah. And, and that other- happened in this Queensland case of Ernst where the copper had a conversation with a witness who cast serious doubt on the complainant in a sexual assault case in terms of her credibility and reliability. And he decided it didn't support the prosecution case, so he didn't write it down, Mm. didn't record it, didn't disclose it. And the other thing that I think is if we've got this regime where if you don't plead guilty before committal, you don't get a big discount. The flip side to that should be if evidence isn't served on you before committal, it's not admissible. Time starts again. No, it's not admissible in your trial, right? Full stop, unless you want it to be, right? Yeah. Uh, unless well, it arises should... after, like if, if, if there's an interview done or if there's new information, that's one thing. But if it existed before and it wasn't served on you, that's it. That's, you know, that would solve so many problems where things are just tossed over the, uh, the bar table. It would cause more diligence. It would be yeah. an extreme provision in the sense you could imagine some very serious offenders not being brought to account because of it. Well, so, exceptional circumstances. Or exceptional circumstances, yeah. I mean, there is yeah. a test at the moment, isn't there, that if they haven't complied with this division, it's not admissible unless. But yeah, it doesn't have a huge amount of teeth, I don't think. Yeah, but I asked a question about that. Interests of justice, right? Interests of justice, I think, yeah. I asked a question about people's experience of that in terms of having evidence excluded then. when there's been late disclosure and... People didn't have much um, 
success. So I asked this question, where success is excluding material that was disclosed late to the accused, what's your success rate in relation to applications to exclude evidence? And most people answered um, one or two, which is either nil or limited success or just a bit more than that. Only 3% of people said that they had a high success Mm. rate. Um, So... I don't think that mechanism is doing the lion's share of no. making sure that no. disclosure obligations are complied with. A lot of the systemic players in the criminal justice system are falling short in this area, I think. I think there's a problem that I think that's right. And I think there's a problem with where defendants are funded by legal aid. There's just not enough money to, go to, right. to get the disclosure done. Like you're not given... To pre- adequately prepare a stay application in totally. every proceeding. I mean, I have matters, I have literally had matters where there has been, of my time, 20 days put in to achieving disclosure in the district court. Wow. Right? And probably 30, Unpaid. 40. Unpaid. Well, no, in my, in my... Oh, that was a private case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but if it's but legal, if you go aid, legal aid, it's you, unpaid. You, it's unpaid. Right, and yeah. that's and who's who can you can't afford to well, do they that? They probably know that. Well, it's part of the problem, mm. and I mean, one option is that legal aid funds that. Another option is that there should be cost consequences for failing mm. to comply with disclosure obligations. I mm. mean, there's plenty of things that can be done. The EAGP grant, the early and appropriate guilty pleas grant, can be, you know, increased tenfold to account for the disclosure work that needs to be done. Yeah, well, or it, they could just disclose. I mean, sure. that's, you know, there, there's a, my, my biggest fear is that all of this ends up being shunted into, oh, there's all these proposals and whatever, and we end up with paralysis. Whereas really you need two things. You, well, you only really need one thing, which is the exceptional circumstances, evidence tendering. You need an easier way to get a stay if disclosure hasn't been done. And arguably, you need a criminal offence. It doesn't have to be a serious criminal offence. It would just be, even if it was a fine, mm. you know? But enough to deter. Enough to deter. Enough to have on your mind that, you know? I don't know if it would deter them. Imagine there was a fine. Failure to disclose a relevant document results in a $500 fine, right? If you're charged. Okay. Mm. Summary Who's going to charge them? The defendants are. What, private prosecutions? Yep. That's not going to happen. Why well, I would do it. I have, I, I've had that's clients who would do it. Would it be like a contempt of court? You just go, oh, no, no, no. Just, 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 you, you just do it. Why not? Why, it, the fact of its existence means that the, the second a cop's entry turns up, right, and the second you wind up at the district court, like, oh, sorry, these are these, these are these records of phone conversations that we had prior to committal. I'm committing an offence. I'm admitting the commission of offence when I hand that over to mm. you. I mean, I had a colleague tell me recently that the police didn't disclose until kind of the doorsteps of the trial that during the course of the investigation when they arrested a person who had been communicating by mobile telephone to the accused, the police seized that person's phone and continued communicating with the accused as if they were the friend and they didn't disclose that. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, I'm not shocked because that happens. Sure. Right? I've, I've, been, on day, I've <laughs> been on day four, day three of Basher inquiry, like pre-trial inquiries, 
And the police officer said, oh, yeah, and there was a confidential informant that started this whole thing. Right? We've had three years of trying to get disclosure and that comes out there and it's like, anyway, I don't know. I, I, I'm both shocked and not shocked by the results of your survey. Like, I think it just reflects what most defence practitioners know. And I, I, and I prosecute, right? And I don't understand it. Like, there's actually a real joy that you get I think as a winning prosecutor, fairly. yeah, of winning fairly, totally. mm-hmm. and I just like too. And if there's any, you know, it, the the agency's like, oh, should you know, should we disclose? Yes, yes, right, disclose it. Mm. Why not? You know, mm. don't don't hide things. <laughs> well, what, why? What 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 do you? What are you, I, if you I'm if laughing you can't, because it's so farcical. If you can't win fair and square. How do you sleep at night? Maddie, you know, I, I love that. I love that you're saying that. I, just, I don't understand it. That's really, fucking I, beautiful. I really don't, you know. I think I think if you're petty enough to want to put some poor sap in jail by cheating, then you're not much of a human being, you know, or by being lazy. I get, having said that, I get that people are overworked, particularly prosecutors. I think the, the prosecutors are dangerously underfunded. And that needs to be. I, I don't, you know. I, th- I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Mm. But if you're not working, you know, if if it's not that, if it's not your workload that's stopping you from doing this, then I've got no time for you. Like that's. That was well said. Yeah, but workload's not a justification either, Manny. I mean, we're all busy and have jobs to do, but this is fundamental. Yeah. You can't you can't bring proceedings and endure the workload that that involves unless you're prepared to comply with this obligation. Yeah, there's. I mean, that's right. Do I expect Do I expect a young prosecutor at the start of his or her career to resign their position because they don't have time to deal with my disclosure requests? I, I don't think that I do. It's part of me that does, but I don't think that I do. If you're a crown prosecutor. Do I expect you to disclose and do everything you can? I probably do, right? But I expect DPP solicitors not to say things like, oh, subpoena it or we don't have it, the police have it and we're not going to look at it to actually decide whether it should be disclosed or... Yeah, I mean, send an email saying to... And those kind of responses are common. Yeah, well, that's weird, isn't it? Like, again, I don't understand that. It's like, hey, there might be this, there, there might be a fact sheet about this complainant having credibility issues. Can you ask the police for it? No, that's weird. Exactly. That's just weird. Like, what? You're going to spend more time on the phone with me than it's going to take you to send that email. Like, so it's not a workload justification in that case. And the authorities make it so clear, and DPP lawyers must know this, that there's no meaningful distinction between the police and the prosecuting agency when it comes to disclosure. They're imputed with the knowledge of the material that the police possess. I have to say, experiences differ, and there are many DPP lawyers that I've come across who have done the right thing. Sure, but... I don't, I don't want to, you know, let's, let's not go around shitting on people. Well, I mean, I'm prepared to say that there's a major systemic problem in New South Wales and it's not just with the police. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I think that's right. I just don't know what the cause is. Again, I I just can't fathom it. It's it's beyond my 
is it ego? Is it I want to win? Is it? Yeah, I think it is connected to that. I think there's a culturally entrenched kind of perversion of the fundamental aspects of the criminal justice system. I think part of the problem is, you know, fact, the presumption of innocence and the burden and onus of proof not being given meaningful effect. Yeah, I think I, I think part of the problem is that too many prosecute that I think. I'm about to say this, but I don't mean this. I, I think Crown prosecutors are great and many of them are great, but a lot, not a lot of them have a lot of experience defending. Mm. And what I think you end up with is capture. That is to say, if all you're doing is prosecuting, you don't know what it's like on the other side and you don't have the impetus to push for disclosure when you're on the other side. So when I prosecute, I know what it's like to mm. not have disclosure. And yeah, I'm like, me too. Man, I'm not going to be that guy. Like, that's mm. gross. Mm. But if you don't, if you're never exposed to that, then maybe you just don't know. Mm. Maybe and, a, I mean, I think that's a very favourable. There might be like, a, like a kitchen money. kitchen culture of wins on the board. No, I, I, I look, sure, I'm sure there are some people who are motivated in that way, but I don't think that that is the cause of the systemic problem. Almost all of the prosecutors that I know, crowns and and solicitors, are not shitheads, right? They're not people who are evilly going, yeah, we're going to, I mean, you know. Mm. So I think it's not that. I don't think it's runs on the board. I think it's not, nor do I think it is really a misunderstanding of the obligations. I think it's just this is the accepted practice and this is what we're going to do. And in part then the responsibility falls on defence lawyers who again find themselves underfunded mm. because if you push back, if all of us push back in every matter, mm. we come back to the learned magistrate's point, which is the criminal justice system would grind to a halt. Mm. There anyway. is collective power in in an approach by defence lawyers to, to insist on this, but well, I think it shouldn't come to that. Query whether uh, it shouldn't come to that, but... Query whether we're, we are complying with our obligations if we don't press for absolute disclosure and go down those rabbit holes in... Oh, we have to. ...in every matter, you know? And I, and I think given the state of play in New South Wales, you have to expect that there's a reasonable chance that you're going to be faced in any contested case with a breach, and so you, you have to operate on that basis. Well, I mean, if you get an indictable brief on which there's no emails and no cops entries then you know that disclosure hasn't been affected. Totally. I had a matter of... And it, they're routinely isn't. not uh, it, in the standard, brief. right? Yeah. Standard. If you're a prosecutor out there and you get a 15A certificate saying that disclosures have been complied with and there's no cops entries and there's no emails, then you know that that 15A certificate's wrong. Like, it just has to be mm. in almost every matter. I had a matter in which we get to trial sort of, you know, three years after charging and the police officer says, oh, yeah, I've got about 400 messages on my phone between me and the complainant while I'm cross-examining him towards the end of the trial. Like, mm. anyway. What a great topic. That was great. Fun things. Every three weeks we do fun things. We'll start with you, Manu Kukasherian. I um, have started a new gym regime. Love it. And I'm just loving it. You know, three days a week, 5.30 in the morning, 
go to the gym, personal trainer, wreck my body. 3.30 in the morning. 5.30 in the morning. If they were open at 3.30, I'd probably do 3.30. Nice one. But it's so good. Did you do it this morning? Did it this morning. I'm in incredible amounts of pain. Wow. Um, Looking good. Looking I'm good. feeling you. good, you know. Right. It, that's it's so amazing. Great, the pick-up you get from, from – mm. yeah. So anyway, that's what I'm doing. That's good. my fun thing. That's a that's great, great fun thing. What's your fun thing, steve my fun thing, sorry, my whole shirt's just come undone. <laughs> is that it? That's your fun thing? Bright angle. <laughs> <laughs> That's everyone else's fun thing. My fun thing is I got invited, was it last weekend or the weekend before, to go down to the south coast into a state forest Oh yeah. with Sue Higginson, who's also an MLC, to look at the biggest spotted gum in the world, oh, possibly yeah. the That's, biggest spotted gum. That's yeah, a secret location. Spotty. Uh, I don't know if it's secret. I saw. I actually looked at it online and saw saw a very specific oh, reference okay. to it. Yeah, but it's called Big Spotty, and it's this massive <laughs> spotted gum. And I took Damien, my son, and um, yeah, it was just a magical, beautiful experience. To Imagine how many guitars you can make out of to that. To see thing. this forest so and this amazing tree, or wood chips, Jim. Or pallets, or yeah, something <laughs> yeah. else high quality. Leave but, it alone. But Let it's it been. A, it's in an area that's been logged for, I think, the best part of a hundred or more years. By the New South Wales State Government. Uh, yeah, y- y- forestry yeah. corp. Yeah, now it is at the moment, and has been in the past. I don't know how long it's uh, been God forestry corp, but it's. Um, <laughs> Yeah, incredible. But they obviously saw fit not to chop it down in the past. <laughs> so its uniqueness might have had a factor in it. It's that. amazing. Anyway, it's just an incredible thing to see. Yeah, Good so people you. want to go down for a bushwalk. It's not that far from the uh, from the main road, but yeah, it's called Big Spotty. You can Google it. Great. Ballistic Graham. Uh, I've been to Europe. Oh, yeah. How was it? Yeah. Oh, it was Europe magical. With, Europe with infants. Yes. Love it. Yes. Um, met up with my two sisters. Love it. How are they? They're wonderful. Still listening to the show kids. or are they giving up? Mm. <laughs> I definitely one of I know at least one of my four sisters no, two of my four sisters are pretty solid listeners. Not sure about my two younger rogue Not happy. solicitors We're gonna who have I to just visited. Leave little messages um, rogue for them. Sisters who I just visited. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to leave little messages for them in the show so they have to Yeah, listen. we will, we will. But um, good. The Bub loved it. Yeah, she loved it. Um Seeing her cousins and... First time. Yeah, it was so great. Great. Yeah. Love it. Good. What about you, Jim? Oh, yeah, right. Um, uh, look, we're on the three-week stretch to the final of our exams. This is great. We're on our way. This is so, great. Uh, it's not quite a fun thing yet, but I can taste it. Great. So, you know... Good luck with them. Thank you. Appreciate it, Felicity. Listeners, we appreciate your time. Everyone, you know, if you're on the treadmill right now, get off it safely. We'll see you next uh, week. For listening, please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz. 